Have you ever wondered why some people, ideas, and careers advance rapidly? We discover the mindsets and the actions behind them. Today we have Michael Hyatt joining us. Michael is regarded as one of Canada's top entrepreneurs, uh, is a known technology visionary and a celebrated Dragon's Den panel member. He has grown and scaled several tech firms to multi-million dollar acquisitions and is a recipient of the Top 40 Under 40 Award. Michael, I want to thank you for joining us. Um, and I want to start by talking about the early days and really some of the adversities that you would have faced early on uh, and just how they contributed to the, the growth and success uh, that you later went on to have. It's a good question. I mean, it's uh, probably requires a bit of a, a detailed answer in that, you know, uh, first thing people should know is that I'm a, and my brother were 20 year overnight successes. And I, I wish I could just tell your audience, okay, these are the three things that got me here or just do this or rinse and repeat. And there's some principles that we live by, but largely, you know, success is very much a very consistent march. And there's just a lot of hard work and showing up. I mean, we showed up and we kept showing up and we kept, there's a certain amount of perseverance and grit and determination that really brings it all together. Um, over the 20 years of both our companies that we built and sold, uh, tremendously difficult times, dark days, payroll problems, employee problems, client problems, red alert, all hands on deck. You know, just about every problem you can imagine, we probably saw it once or twice and sometimes very often. And, and there's nothing more to it than, uh, uh, being very kind of deliberate and, and somewhat patient about a consistency about the march. Um, there's a certain idea that you have to delay a lot of gratification to make it in, in business. And you have to be able to sit back and, and be consistent and not be overly anxious about selling your company or whatever else it is. It's just, uh, um, it's just all about a consistency of march. And I can imagine um, as you're going through that, you know, some of the, some of the challenges and some of the things that pop up, you know, there are times when it can be overwhelming. I mean, if you were to look back uh, at your experience, uh, was there anything in particular that kind of took you off balance where, you know, giving up was uh, on your mind or, you know, you just felt that it was too much, it, it became too overwhelming? Is there anything specific that you can think of in that regard? You know, yeah, kind of always thought... have this mindset that you're going you're gonna to trudge through it no matter what. I, I'd be lying if I said, it, you know, it was all trudging through it. And that Winston Churchill says, when you're going through hell, keep going. Uh, but I think that if I, I'd be lying if I said I never wanted to quit because I did. I didn't, but I wanted to at times. There were times where I would have just, you know, sold the farm cheap and left and, and gone on some desert island. And I think the fantasy of a lot of entrepreneurs that run businesses that are hard is, what island can I escape to where no one can find me? I mean, it's a very tough, tough march, but we never gave up. But certainly there were times when we would have some very, very big challenges with product or with staff or with clients that were just, you know, uh, crippling. And uh, you would still have to get up and go in the next day. I mean, when your company is hundreds of people, you have a lot of responsibilities. There's a lot of people who depend on you. There's a lot of mortgages that you help pay. And people look up to you and they and they and they know that you're going to do the right things. And uh, you have a tremendous amount of responsibility to a lot of families. So you can't forget that. It's not about just you. It's about people that have decided to work with you. And it's in one way, it's quite an honor. If you think about it, people have decided that, that that's, this is where they're going to attach their time and their life to and a lot of their family's well-being, right? 
and you have a big obligation to do the right things. And you can't quit because really you can't abandon the ship on your people. You know, good captains don't do that. But I'd be lying if I said, you know, it was always just tough, but we always knew it was going to be great because we actually didn't. So what uh, what drove you in the early days? I understand later on it was uh, a dedication to, to leading your team and uh, a dedication to to taking them somewhere is essentially. But early on, you know, when you didn't have the big team, when you were just getting started, you know, doing the initial outreach, putting the pieces together, really, what was driving you through that adversity, and and what were some of the things that uh, drove that early success and scale when you look at and uh, putting those initial pieces together and and uh, reaching out to to large organizations when you weren't one and and just you know developing the business at that stage well when you're really small i mean you don't know not anything else right so there wasn't really you know we we just really wanted to make it really really badly and we just wanted to be successful and we just had this mindset that uh, we were going to win and we were very determined um when we were very small i I remember this really weird time in the 90s, the late 90s. My brother and I would be driving around this little Volkswagen, this little black Volkswagen he had. And, you know, we would, I don't know why, but we were like smoking cigars out the window. I, I can't imagine why this was so cool, but we felt pretty cool. But I had this feeling, and I couldn't describe it anything more than I just felt successful. I felt successful in the moment. It wasn't like I was saying I'm going to be successful. I just felt successful then. And it almost like you became what you feel like you were then. And because sometimes when you say, I'm going to be successful, that's what the world gives you. It always gives you that I'm going to be successful in the future, but the future never really comes if you think about it that way. We just felt the certain amount of contentment that what we had done is successful and we felt like successful guys. And whether we were cocky or silly or whatever it was, we just felt that we were really doing something. We had software, we were selling it, people were buying it, and this is really great. you know. And when you don't grow up with any money, uh, and someone's giving you like 3000 bucks a license for your software. It's, it's American dollars, you know, and you're living in Canada. That's a, you know, a tremendous amount of money back then. Right. Absolutely. So really it was, I guess it was observing some of the things that you were accomplishing at the time and, uh, seeing that as a success, you know, we're not there yet, but we're making things happen and, and that's good enough. I think that's a great takeaway. Um, but I want to I want to touch on something a little bit more uh, in your speaker spotlight showcase talk. I mean, I've watched that many times. Just beautifully delivered, and you know, great great concept overall. Um, you talk about the value of instinct and how we're not really taught that through traditional education. We're taught facts. You know, we're taught to to remember things, but we're not taught to to follow our instincts. And and it might be a hard thing to teach because it's you know, it's so broad, but uh, when did you really, can you elaborate on that a bit more? And when did you really start to lean into that and, and trust the instincts that you had? Um, was that, you know, from the beginning or, or later on, did you, did you really start to see that? Well, I think what I was trying to get at in that part of my talk was I was trying to tell people that our um, most undervalued form of communication and probably the most accurate and probably the fastest form of communication is instantaneous, which is our feelings. And uh, we're taught, you know, maybe that's not really there because you can't, you know, really ascribe a sense to it. But our feelings are the highest form of communication that we have. And uh, it's there for a reason. And uh, I think you have to garner an instinct of, you know, what's going to work and what's not. Very often you walk into a room and you instantly don't like somebody and you have to figure out, do you just have a bias or are you 
do you really have a problem with this person? Do you really not trust them? And usually there's a reason for that. And what I would tell people when they're building a company is that culture is everything. And if you instinctively know someone is really great developer or really great salesperson, but culturally uh, they're going to be rotten, your instinct should say that you can't hire them because instinctively, you know, you've got to trust yourself because you don't, doesn't matter how smart someone is, if they're an a-hole, they're going to really hurt your company. And, and everybody will see that you tolerate that as a leader. And if you tolerate that type of behavior, people will leave you and they won't respect. But how do you, how do you separate that from bias? Because, you know, we can, we're obviously very, very biased in in how we perceive people based on our own, our own traits. I mean, how do you separate Mm -hmm. an instinct for this person might not be right for everybody, or this person might not be right for me because, you know, there's, there's obviously a difference there. And I think, I think you're experience has to overlay your instinct so that basically, you know, after time and you experience a certain amount of things, what ends up happening is that you know that your instinct is probably going to be repeatable and correct. I think that what happens, uh, that if you just have instinct alone, that's okay, but you hone it by your experience over time. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I just want to switch gears here a bit. And uh, I guess you're obviously an active investor and a, a panel on Dragon's Den, a panel member on Dragon's Den. Uh, what have you seen as a, a core factor that contributes to entrepreneurial success? Is it the idea? Is it is it traits of the founder? Uh, what factors are most crucial for you know making things happen as, a, as an early stage entrepreneur? And what do you really look for? Um, I think that the number one thing investors look for in early companies is do you buy into the CEO? I invest in a lot of companies and I invest in a lot of VCs that invest in a lot of companies. And I would say if there's a, almost 100% correlation between success and failure, it's did we pick the right leader? Because a fish rots from the head. And if you don't like the leader, if you don't think they're a level five leader, you don't think they're going to get it. You don't think they're going to listen to you. You don't think they're going to put a board in that challenges them or do the right things when they have to do the right things. Then then you're kind of up the creek without a paddle no matter what. And we've seen it time and time again. Even you know companies in great markets with bad leaders normally fail. Um, aside from if you get the leadership right, um, you're really betting on a leadership team's ability to to pivot. All great companies pivot. You know, I mean, you've seen uh, Pinterest, uh, Twitter, and Instagram all before they're acquired or whatever. They were all pivoted from from failures. You know, and things called Tote and Bourbon and Odeo, they were all pivoted into those companies I just mentioned. And you didn't know that, right? But that's how it all started. So many companies are failures that are allowed to fail and pivot to the right thing. And the reason they pivoted was that they had a great leadership team that saw the pivot and the opportunity. Most most companies sit on a very, very short dividing line of about a 3% to the left or right, which could be a meaningfulness between success and failure. I mean, how close do you think MySpace ever was to being Facebook? In one way, they were incredibly close right? If, if, if MySpace just made a uniformity that Facebook had where every page looked kind of the same, and they just made it so you actually knew who the person was behind MySpace every time because you could tell who the people were early on Facebook, they essentially had Facebook. Now one's worth hundreds of billions and one is worth effectively zero. And so sometimes the difference between raging success and failure is only what I call 3% to the left or right. It's not that big. Um, so after you get a hold of, you know, do you like the management team? Do you trust them? Do you like them? Do you want to work with them? Uh, and you get past uh, the markets and the ability to pivot. I think you're, 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 you're a long way there to making an investment. And then you have to think if the economics make any sense to you. So it, it sounds like it, it really all, um, 
thought it, it really all comes down to that ability to to be nimble. Is that uh, is that inherent, or is that is that something you can learn? I mean, somebody that's you know obviously a couple failures, and you're seeing the need to pivot over time. Are some people naturally good at it, or um, is it kind of a trial and error process to to be able to react well, to the constantly changing environment? I I think that your listeners should know that their job if they're raising money is to de-risk the deal for investors. The more you de-risk the deal, the higher your valuation will be. If you're, you know, it's really, it's interesting. If you're, the best thing to be is to invest in a multi-repeat, a multi-exit entrepreneur because you're predictably, they're likely to get out of this business again. You get a good return. You're, that's, that's, that's a high correlation. But what's also interesting is if you've seen somebody fail a couple of times and you can really understand their failures and you can really understand what they did wrong and they really understand it, it's another actually uh, a good reason to invest in the person because, you know, the learning is there. Um, I've seen guys fail a couple of times and then have big, big hits, right? And uh, uh, I I would say those are really, really important attributes. So obviously, um, you know, the product is is going to play some role. It's not all it's not all based on that ability to pivot or the founder's ability in general. I mean, when you're looking at early markets like you know, blockchain, uh, AI, uh, IoT, uh, you as an investor, you know, how do you sort through the solutions with the most promise? Because you know, it's, it's the Wild West in a lot of these areas and things are obviously starting to develop. So are you, are you looking at, at these solutions? Are you actively investing in them? And if you are, I mean, you know, what's, your, what's your process for, for sorting through it as we're so kind of early Um, on in in these markets? You know, I I do invest in companies. I do invest in companies directly, but I spend most of my time investing alongside VCs because to be honest, I don't necessarily have the time to follow the investments because I understand something that I think some people take for granted is that, you know, I'm going to be invested in this company for a decade and I'm not always going to be around, but a VC is there to support their LPs and they'll be around. It's, It's an interesting thing because you want someone to be on the board to defend your share class when you're not around in seven years from now, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I, I do it both. I go direct and a VC, but um, uh, it, it, it's, I, I would say that if one thing I noticed that most people underestimate when they start a company is that they're not prepared to be in it for 10 or 15 years and you need to be. The average entrepreneur is in their company for over 10 years before they sell it. Uh, and the average entrepreneur only retains about 7% of the selling price at the end of it after everything else is paid. It's pretty low. You know, you sell your company for $100 million, you get $7 million. $7 million is a lot of money. But you know what? Comparatively, um, if you were – think about that. So let's say you worked on your company for 10 years, okay, uh, and uh, you exited and you got $7 million. You know, if you divide that by 10, you get a, you know, a great return every year. But it's nothing like – monumentous that you would think it was like, you know, 50 million or something, right? So it's not as big as people think it is on, on average. Interesting. Um, and I think, uh, you know, looking at, if we, if we dial back to, to really what goes into, to kind of creating some of these products, um, mm-hmm. if you look at, if you look at software as a service in general, uh, obviously the barriers for, for building software has decreased substantially uh, with the knowledge and, and some of the tools that we have available today that we didn't have available 15, 20 years ago when right. this was just starting. Um, I mean, do you think this has obviously also resulted in, in saturation in a lot of verticals? Do you think that this mm-hmm. is more or less difficult if you look at past or present time to to build 
to build well, it's a, a lot, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot easier to build the actual product because when we started, you didn't have it. You had to write your own compilers. I don't know everything by yourself. Right. And now you can get a lot of things off the shelf to make actually developing software better. But then, you know, there's some ch- a lot of challenges in doing AI and all the rest of it. I mean, there's always a way to keep up, but you're, you're constantly pushed right now. It's cheaper than it ever was. It's, it's, it's like literally more than a thousand times cheaper to start a company today than it was 15 years ago or 20 years ago. It's like crazy, crazy cheap. All you need is an iPhone and a, and a, maybe a, a computer and, and, and you got your, you got your, you got your company started, right? Think about that. I mean, think about the infrastructure and what you'd have to buy and who you'd have to hire to do all the manual labor and all that stuff. And that's why computing is so impressive. Just think for a second, everything that your iPhone does now, and, and people complain about the price for $1,000. They're completely wrong. For a thousand bucks, it does what in 1982 would take a million dollars, right? Uh, if you really think about it, right? And so technology has is, is gotten to a point where it's allowed us to start companies really, really expensively. So that's the good news. The bad news is everybody tries. So the, the pool is a lot more murky. There's a lot more people out there, startups, and people are doing it. But when they get into it, fundamentally, they all find the same thing, that no matter how cheap or expensive technology is or no matter how cheap or fast it is to start a company, running a company and running other people and getting clients and scaling is just a grind like everything else. And when you get into the grind, you get into the grind and it's just will never be easy. What's the most important uh, piece, would you say early on? I know, you know, I think sales and generating revenue, in my opinion, is is uh, incredibly important because there's nothing else to manage, essentially, if you don't have the revenue. But uh, maybe can you elaborate on, you know, it's the barriers are obviously lower, but but what should those activities be in, at the very beginning as a founder? You know, the number one thing I see uh, that's that barrier founders early is that they don't quite understand that they need to show that dogs eat the dog food or people drink the champagne. You got to show that there is real demand for your widget. I see a lot of people building things that are theoretically, I guess they could have clients and what have you, but it's all, it's all good until you actually try to go out there and sell it. I mean, a lot of people, what they do is they'll take a number of a huge number of people in the so-called market and they'll multiply it by a dollar figure and then multiply it by the number figure. And really when you multiply three numbers together, you're always going to get a very big number and you're going to claim that's your TAM. That's your total addressable market. You're going to claim that your market is hundreds of billions and there's a hockey stick to get there. And let me guess, if you only get 1% of the market, you're going to have a hundred million in revenue in four years. And if that's true, how come that almost never transpires for anybody? Because fundamentally that math and that calculus is very, very wrong. And I think what people get wrong, it's a lot harder to sell your widget than you think it would. And really you don't know much about your product until some companies or people are willing to spend their budget on you. Remember, you're not just competing against um, other things in your category. You're competing against everything else a company has to spend in that quarter. And you have to make it to the top three or four or five things. You're just never going to get bought. So it's a, it's a, it's a real, real process. So, until you actually show that you say, okay, well, my, my widget costs 10 bucks a widget. Well, until somebody buys it and, and people are willing to consistently pay for it, you're not right. You actually don't know the price of your widget. On that note, um, you know, thinking about the mid, uh, the medium sized business, mid enterprise, enterprise level, um, you know, what can, what can organizations do to stay up to date? I mean, obviously, you know, much of your career, you, you've been the one. You know, helping to shape these technological process and, and bringing these new these new things forward. But uh, overall, are from the medium sized enterprise to the large enterprise, you know, are we up to date? Is there opportunity to bring a lot more forward? Or uh, if so, you know, where where are they lagging behind in 
regards to AI and machine learning and these new things that are starting to pop up? Um, I would say most companies are misreading the speed of AI and how fast it's coming in. Um, there's a great book put out by these professors that I work with at UFT, a part of the Rotman School of Business for the Creative Destruction Lab, and Ajay Agarwal and uh, Joshua Gans uh, had uh, wrote this book, and the the uh, and uh, sorry, and also Abby Goldberg it, it wrote it, and and really what they're saying is that uh, the world's going to change a lot faster because uh, the beginning part of artificial intelligence is called a prediction machine, and prediction machines are going to revolutionize all companies and making it a cheaper decision process quicker. And it's the beginning of a decision process. And their theory is, and it's quite right, that math is getting very cheap. And as math gets very cheap, um, things get uh, used ubiquitously. So why am I saying this? And why do I believe in what they're writing? What I believe is that in only about five years, there's going to be a have and have not set of companies, ones that actually start to integrate early artificial intelligence to make themselves hyper-efficient and much, much, much more profitable because they can cut out a ton of things to make efficient decisions and ones that don't. There's companies that will struggle along, muck along, and make it, but truly they'll become dinosaurs very quickly. I think most companies, to answer your question, are going to be shell-shocked by how fast what the rate of change is uh, with AI. One thing I will tell you is that it wasn't like the, the management team at Blockbuster were stupid. They were actually very smart. What they didn't understand or they miscalculated was the rate of change. I mean, they knew instinctively that, of course, video would be piped to the home at some time. They just didn't understand how quickly that transformation would occur. I think they thought they had 10 more years when they had no more years. So from a people perspective, though, and I you know, completely agree with all that, from a people perspective um, in some of these organizations, do you do you think that um, there'll be a lot of job replacement? Do you think that that people in general will have to adapt and maybe like, not at the founding level, but um, maybe mid-level management and, and around that? And what will, from a human resource perspective, how is that going to affect organizations overall? And will there be a lot of jobs that will no longer exist? And will the creative people kind of shine in, in this new environment? I mean, what, what does that look like from your perspective? The short answer is, the, the short answer is um, yes, a tremendous amount of jobs are going to go away. A tremendous amount of jobs will go away, just like they always have for the past 100 years, 200 years. And every time we bring in automation of some kind, we change jobs. I mean, in the 1800s, people used to break rocks in a quarry with a sledgehammer, and that was a good job. We don't do that anymore. That's a terrible job right? Because we brought in machines and what have you. Eventually, everything gets replaced. I mean, and people think, well, just because you brought out ATM, for sure, there are articles written that every single bank teller is going to be fired. Well, how can we have more bank tellers now? The reason is because that bank teller now doesn't have to do the ugly job of sitting there counting money all day, right? I mean, there, were, there was a lot of before, you know, when we brought out Excel spreadsheets in the 80s, we said, okay, all the accountants are done. We're going to fire all the accountants. Well, no, we have more accountants, and now they're doing more important things, right? Mm -hmm. So what I would argue is that, yes, all these jobs we do that the iPhone has consolidated and technology has consolidated and AI will consolidate will rise what we get to do up the ladder to better things. So IQ becomes less important. EQ becomes more important because right now computers are kind of jumping into the IQ trend really quickly, like pattern recognition, like looking at radiology charts, looking at image recognition. They're doing that better than us already. We don't have to do that anymore, right? Yeah. And, and, and so, yeah, the short answer is, 
I mean, if I, if you and I were talking in 1996 or 1993, we'd say the internet's coming and it's going to kill all the jobs. Well, it did kill a lot of jobs, but it made a lot of jobs too, right? Mm -hmm. That you didn't know existed, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to lose jobs. They're going to change. We're going to invent jobs that we never had. And we're going to do what we've done for hundreds of years. And we're going to go through this big change. Now, there is a pig in the python. The pig in the python is probably two things. One, we have a tremendous amount of baby boomers that are retiring, 15 million a year right now in the U.S., and that's yeah. never happened. They were the richest generation ever existed. That's changing, and you see that in the, probably in the inflation statistics right now, which is essentially no inflation, and you see it happening around the world right now. You also are going to see a huge change because this change is coming in as kind of a, you know, a hyper-performance and not just a kind of what I call a gradual performance change uh, when you start bringing in real AI. But, you know, I'm an optimist. I think the world is getting dramatically better. We, we're also not talking about how much cheaper life is getting because, for example, like what if I told you in seven years from today, you do not need to buy a car. What do you spend on a car? 400 bucks a month on your lease if you're lucky, 200 bucks a month on insurance, then parking, then this and that. Take all that away and you spend $4 a ride and a robot's going to take you around Toronto. So where does that all that other money go? It goes in your pocket, right? I mean, so there's all these efficiencies. How about if we stop paying much for electricity because batteries get so good that we're just storing it for solar way better because the photoelectronic vault has gone from $76 to $0.05, cents, you know? So we, there's a tremendous amount of things that are happening that are making our lives cheaper and better, and that includes jobs and everything we do. Progress will happen. Resistance is futile. Moore's law in some form is going to keep making things um, exponentially better in computing. And as computing gets exponentially more powerful, math gets cheaper. As math gets cheaper, it seeps into a lot of places. And it does a lot more calculus for us. Um, you know, you won't find a single person listening to this podcast or out there that says they want medicine from the year 2000. Because instinctively, you know, it's much better now. But you wouldn't even find anybody that would want medicine from one year ago. Because you instinctively know that it's getting so much better every 12 months that yeah. you want to get on the train of stem cell research and everything else, right? So absolutely, yeah. they're, they're, what I'm saying is the change our planet is going through is really, really good. Your, uh, Harari, uh, the professor who wrote Sapiens and stuff, makes a great point that we've kind of conquered disease and famine and war. There's no war in the Western Hemisphere. There is war around the world, but not nearly as much as there was. Famine is going away. Extreme poverty by the year 2035 will be almost eradicated. We're in 1880, 80% of the planet under this definition was extreme poverty, right? So we're going in the right direction. Now we have new challenges, as he points out. We have climate change is a real problem. You could also say fertility rates that are dropping precipitously are a real problem. You also have gene-edited babies coming out, which could provide a tremendous problem because you have two different types of humans in the next 50 years, right? So we, we, we have other challenges, which I think the number one challenge we have on this planet is very clearly the environment, which is changing a lot faster than people thought it would because we're wrong on that so far. And uh, so I would say the challenges are not so much AI, not so much this. I think we're going to have to overcome um, some very, very, very real problems in probably two categories. One is climate change, and the other one is probably income disparity. I mean, the have and the have-nots on this planet are being split and polarized in a way that we've never seen before. And this is why you're seeing this incredible division, even in America, the super rich country, right? Uh, it's it's, it's uh, quite polarizing. So. Uh, I've never, we've never seen the modern planet in the past uh, century be this polarized politically, uh, so which is interesting. I mean, uh, yeah. you, 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 you would normally see people divide 
um, along um, different lines. But, you know, now people aren't showing up to Thanksgiving in the U.S. because they don't want to argue between Republican and Democrat, which never traditionally mm-hmm. happened, right? I mean, it was never this bad. So as entrepreneurs, um, do you think we should be chasing some of, you may have answered and already actually, but do you think we should be chasing some of these kind of flashier topics, obviously, when when conversations like AI and blockchain and, and things like this are, are popping up? Uh, I think there's a there's an urge to say, okay, let's trace, let's chase the trend, and um, you know, really try to build something in this domain. Um, but you're saying that maybe we should be focused on uh, solving more immediate problems and and looking looking to that and, and building solutions around that. Is that is that? Yeah, correct? look, look, as entrepreneurs, there's trem- like we I could talk about problems that probably may exist in ten years, and I want to get ahead of the curve, and I want to be this, I want to be that, but. Yeah, listen, if you bring out a product today, people need to buy it. Like, what can I sell today is what you need to think about. You can always mature and change your company and update your product and and pivot. But you should definitely have a wholly saleable product today or a service today that people want to pay a nice uh, number for so you can have a gross margin so you can actually present a net margin. Remember something about your company that all companies are actually valued on one simple metric eventually. And that's its ability to produce future cash flow or future cash flow potentials. Now, if you think about that, you think about the early days of Facebook, it was always valued a tremendous amount. But why was it really valued a tremendous amount? And why was that proved to be correct for, for the most part? Because by the time it gets to the S&P and it goes public, the average S&P company has a bottom line of about 10%. They had a bottom line of about 45 to 47%, right? So they were always kind of a very valuable company, if you think about it, right? A tremendous bottom line. So think about what you can do that'll have a real way to drop cash to the bottom eventually in your company. A lot of tech companies and a lot of founders think, I don't have to worry about profit. I don't have to worry about cash. Yes, you do. Because, you know, if you just run a business with very low margins, and even if you grow very quickly on revenue, but you can never produce cash, you still eventually will have to pay the ferryman, right? You have to pay the piper. It won't work. I mean, obviously, that, you know, timing is very important and plays a role. And we can we can pivot and we can adjust to the things that, that come up. But in certain markets, um, I mean, you need to you need to be on time. You need to be, you know, introducing something uh, when it matters, essentially. And... Um, and as things kind of change and evolve, uh, how do you make sure it is the right time to, to solve that problem? How do you make sure you're entering at the right time overall? You know, a, a, I'll answer this question how I'll answer this question, a story I heard. And I think it's kind of true uh, how Travis started uh, Uber, but he, he actually he was starting with like a limo renting company or there. He was actually running a couple of businesses in his parents' basement. But what he did is he kind of had this idea, Uber, and he gave one phone to one limo driver, and he would test this app, and it working. And then his friends heard about it, and his friends would text him and say, hey, can I, can I use that um, text thing to grab your limo driver, and I'll pay him? Like, so he kind of instinctively knew he had a company because he just right around him, people were asking. All his friends were saying, come on, come on, come on. Let me use your, your app. Let me use your thing. So think about what I just said, right? You yeah. come up with something, and all your friends are clamoring to use it. That's a pretty good image. That's a pretty good thing because your friends aren't clamoring to use it just because your friends. Well, they might, but probably not. It's because they need it. They need it, right? People, they, they, they really want it, right? And, uh, and, and if people really need to use that app, and, and he was right. I mean, he, I mean, the guy started an incredible, incredible uh, change. I mean, I would say that Uber is responsible for a complete economy change, right? You think about 
people complain about Uber and hurting the taxi industry, but have we ever talked about how many people have got side jobs and how much it's helped the economy? So a lot of people will drive Uber as a second job that really need that money. But it really changed the sharing economy. It was very helpful. So what you're saying is in a lot of cases, the problems are, are right in front of you and, and mm-hmm. yeah, it probably traces back to, to chasing your instinct again. Stop, stop, and... stop thinking of the future. Stop thinking of like, well, where's yeah. this going to be? So you don't have a crystal ball. Stop for prognostication. Don't, 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 start, don't say, I, I, I think in my crystal ball that in three years, mm-hmm. every company is going to use this kind of AI. Well, you're probably going to be wrong because you don't have a crystal ball. What will people buy now? What will people buy now from you? What would they pay good dollars for? It's okay. And by the way, if you don't have competitors, you're probably in trouble because you're never the first, you're never the smartest. You need yeah. some competitors. I mean, businesses fail all the time. You know, most, most businesses fail. So there must be a point yeah. where you should, you should pack it in. I mean, when is it, when do you know that, you know, this wasn't the right time or, or we didn't bring forward the right, we, we're not solving the right problem. Let's People don't want to buy your product. You can't, sell, you, you can't sell your product for a margin that makes sense. I mean, let's say you were baking cookies, okay? And you bake the best cookies in the world. And you know that you need to sell these cookies for $2 to make a reasonable profit. But you go out into the world and you go sell this amazing cookies that you put your heart and life into. And all you could ever get, no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, is a dollar. So you can sell your cookies, but you're going to lose money mm-hmm. on every cookie. You're probably wrong. Or you probably have to get your costs down somehow. But it's not going to work. You just can't keep losing money on your cookie, right? Just, you know, you see what I'm saying? You're going to have to find something that not only people want and pay for, but it's actually profitable eventually. You know, you could try to see the market and all that kind of stuff. And that's what Netflix did. And that's why the last week they raised their prices 13% because they can, because they've got you, right? Mm. Um, or they think. So, well, uh, you, you know, like, will people buy your product for a reasonable price that you can make money? That, that, that's a very simple question and an easy way to look at it. I mean, to, to kind of tie into that analogy, um, how do you know that, and I hope I'm not hammering this point home too much, but how do you know if you should be making different cookies or you just shouldn't be making cookies at all? Because I think that's something that people struggle with is, you know, do we want to shift our product and continue to adapt it and change the features and update the features or look, um, uh, look you know, eventually you start talking yeah. to your clients, talk to your clients, test something out. You know, you got to also know how to test something like Uber Eats, for example. I think the, the city that they tested Uber Eats in first was Toronto, right? They didn't open up Uber Eats everywhere, right? You got to do some test marketing. You can try, you need to fail. I mean, people don't know this, but Airbnb actually opened its own coffee store under a different brand. And then they would put all the keys in the neighborhood of that coffee store just to see if that model worked. So your test so, is mean, really up. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. You see what I mean? Like you, you yep. have to test. Absolutely. You know, just don't jump in. I mean, you know, it's funny. You walk down the drugstore aisle and you don't spend 20 minutes trying to pick the right shampoo. Uh, And and you go back and forth and should I get this? Should I get that? Should I get this vitamin E one? Should I get this green one? And And then you go to work and then you decide to jump into a market in seven minutes and you spend $10 million. It's kind of weird, huh? Absolutely. Um, so your like your test originally with with Diadem with Blue Count. I mean, who who are you testing with? What were the types of things you were testing early on? Well, we 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 we'd actually see if we the product would sell. Was our price point right? I mean, people what would people pay for it? I mean, you actually have to go sell products. We didn't have mm-hmm. VCs in the beginning, so we just had to go out there and get our thing done. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So so what are you up to now, Michael? What's what's next for you? 
uh, overall? Where, um, where, where do you want to go from here? Well, I run a family office now, so I spend a lot of time investing. Um, I still go on the CBC and talk business. I travel around the world giving keynote speeches, and I fix companies. I go into companies and I turn them around, and I fix companies. I enjoy doing it. How does how does somebody catch your eye? I mean, you know, obviously you're you're on Dragon's Den, and you've got your processes for identifying organizations. But if a founder were to come to you with an idea with something valuable, I mean, how do they how do they get your time? How do they um, how do they how do they make sure that what they're saying or what they're presenting is is worth it for you to at least consider overall? Well, I mean, the founder has to understand that when you get approached so much, there's only so many things I can do, even if I do like you. And and the founder has to understand too. Sometimes I turn them down. A lot of times I do, and I could be very wrong. And certainly I make mistakes. But at the end of the day, um, I have to be able to. I have to like what you're doing. I like who you are, what you're doing, and how you see the market. And uh, and then sometimes I get involved. Um, I get sent decks all the time where I'm like, hey, this is interesting. So I'll send it out to like five of my very close friends in my office here and who invested with me. I'll say, what do you think? <laughs> and sometimes I think this is actually a really good thing. And then all five of them come back and say, would never touch it. <laughs> and I, you know, my brother's a very tough critic, for example, <laughs> and I'll yeah. go, you know, so I have to do some work, but listen, I, you also, you know, if an investor turns you down, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, people turned down Airbnb at one and a half million dollar valuation only 11 years ago today. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, everybody's yeah. being wrong. We all are all wrong. I mean, the thing is, I'll go out and I'll invest in 20 companies. Right. And I'll be and I had to look at it hundreds. Right. And there's a whole, like five of them in there that I there's, you know, 195 that I was correct that I turned down and five of them. I should have put money in. I would have done really good. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's really hard. You know, you don't know. And, and I like one of my biggest hits ever. Uh, by multiple with this company that actually switched its product after a year and raised crazy money and bought us out and all this kind of stuff. And at the end of the day, I, I, it looks like I'm a genius. I wasn't a genius. I didn't know that they were going to pivot and fail and do all this stuff. I could never have estimated what they did. I'm no genius. I, I like the guys. I thought they're very bright. But you know what I mean? Like I, you don't really know. Okay. If you're not a genius, I don't know what that makes me, but. <laughs> well, I, 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 you know, I think in your investing, if you take this position that you're a genius, you're probably going to lose a lot of money. Um, yeah. I, I worry all the time. I feel like I'm wrong all the time. I double, triple check. I look at everything. I call people. I, I like if someone says, I got this app for dentists, I call my dentist up and I give it to him like blindly and see if he'll like it. You know, yeah. and I, I will go out there and try. Um, and uh, listen, I also help out a lot of entrepreneurs, even if I didn't invest. I understand people, I give them advice. I'm happy to do it, um, but I just don't invest certainly in everything. I invest in very, very few things. And I'm also I'm on the advisory board of Georgian Partners in Toronto, and they're just a fabulous DC. And uh, so they do a lot of good deals, and I'm lucky to co-invest with them. So, Could you ever see yourself getting your hands dirty on the ground floor again and, and building something, or is it you know, high level just on the investing end? I'll never say never, but I don't know if I want to do that again. I did that for over 20 years. I don't know if I want to grind myself as a CEO again, but if someone called me up and said, hey, would you come in for six months and fix a company? I'd probably do it or a year. I'd go fix a company probably. I don't know if I would start a company. Maybe. I would Mm -hmm. say never. I haven't been able to convince my brother to do it again, so put it that way. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so... You know, one of the other things that you mentioned, uh, and I think, I mean, it comes out in, in your narrative and in, in some of the things you say, you referred to uh, optimists, you know, optimists will die. So you have to be a realist overall. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, how you talk about, um, you know, early on the things that founders need to do and, and just being very straightforward with that, I really see 
um, where you're coming from, but uh, you know, do you think that people are naturally optimistic um, or when starting a business, do you think that, or, or at any stage of growth, do you think that optimistic optimism is the norm or, or um, do people need to? Uh, I think investors get upset when, when entrepreneurs are quote overly optimistic and, and let me give you some advice. As a CEO, your job is to pick a number in revenue in a quarter and for the year that is going to minimally keep your investors excited and then just beat it. So, guys, like if you okay. are listening yeah. to this podcast, so listen to this. If you're if you're doing this podcast and you know uh, you know you think you can do four million in revenue this year, and you know your investors would be happy at three million. Do not tell them four million. Tell them three and beat three. Because if they're happy at three, give them three and beat three. Don't, because if you told them four, they get really happy at four, and then you only get three and a half, so you look like you missed. You see what I mean? Yeah. Sure. So pick, pick things that are realistic. Most, most CEOs do not hit their numbers. They're way too high in the sky, and then they start losing credibility with their boards, investors. That's not a good thing. What's the, uh, what's the importance of brand in all of this? I mean, you know, can you, can you, are there products that exist that without the brand, they would not have the success that they've had, you know, they wouldn't get, get the market share that they have. I think, I think the word brand is really, you know, synonymous with the word trust. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's what matters now. I mean, with everything that's gone on with any brand and any, look at all this stuff with Facebook and Apple and everybody talking about privacy and data. The whole thing is going to come down to trust in this next couple of years. Like, do you trust your iPhone is secure? And then I do. And, and the thing is, is that uh, brand is going to just turn, you just use the word trust instead of brand. And I think that's going to be the number one thing going forward. And I'll also say something you didn't ask, but I'll tell you on a personal front, uh, all the listeners here, all you have is your integrity. That's what you have is your integrity. It's really important to have a personal brand of integrity. Uh, be very careful what you see on social media. Careful the opinions and things you take on where you don't need to. Uh, I don't. If you're running a software company, I don't need to see your Facebook post about Donald Trump. I don't. And, I, and by the yeah. way, it's a silly yeah. idea to post politically because 50% of America would be against you either way. If you don't need to speak about it, do not. You know, I don't need to know what you think. I think that in, in the Middle East, the, the Europe, in America, that's not what you're being hired to do. Keep your powder dry. Uh, keep focused. Uh, your job is not to, you know, be a social media maven, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you know, you yeah. should focus on your business. You, you got a, you know, a bigger thing to do. And by the way, you got a lot of people working for you and it doesn't have anything to do with your business. Don't do it. And careful what you say, careful what you do. Uh, because, what about, you know, yeah. it, everything you say, you know, can be put out there and it never goes away on the internet. Right. You see, uh, you see storytelling emerge quite a bit more as a, as a way to, to build brand and build trust overall. Um, right. Any insight into how to craft a good story in regards to, you know, your solution and, and the market at large and, you know, something that's going to resonate with people and really build that trust. Um, it's a good question. Uh, are you telling, are, are you saying like what story I would tell as an entrepreneur to gain trust or like to, or, gain, or trust. to gain trust with your market? Yeah. With your customers, with your yeah. well, listen. No, nothing's better than the stories your customers tell, not you. Nothing's right. better than a than a reference. Nothing's better than a referral. I mean, look at the real estate industry. It's almost a hundred percent run on referrals. You refer somebody. That's that. That's how it works. Oh, you got to talk to my friend. He's a great agent. Or 
you know, and I bet you there's other industries like hairdressers. Oh, my hairdresser's really good. I mean, you know, it's, it's a referral industry. Same thing on SaaS software. I mean, since Blue Cat sells, you know, expensive, big licenses, I mean, referrals meant a lot. Million-dollar decisions sometimes at times. So reference checks were everything. So what gets a reference from you? What has recently, I guess, is a better question. Um, I would say that um, most of the time uh, I give references for individuals. I'm happy yesterday. I've given references for guys and girls, uh, uh, guys that have worked for me. I, 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 I get a reference for a guy who worked for me 20 years ago recently. You know, they asked me, uh, he gave me a reference, and I said, look, I kept in touch with him as a fabulous individual. Like, um, and uh, so it's, it's really interesting how far back people can find something about everybody now. And people probably check me out all the time. Is, is he a good guy? Is he spineless? Is he honest? Is he, does he have integrity, right? Uh, and uh, those things are really, really important and valuable. Everybody can check you out today, right? I mean, 20 years ago, it was harder to, it was on LinkedIn, it was harder to find you. But now everybody is, referenceable everybody can be you know discerned and figure out that makes sense um so i mean i guess to to reference you know our our dialogue up to date and i reached out to you you know you were open to the conversation we'd obviously never spoken before and and you've taken the time out of your schedule to, to do this and and you like to give back in general if you've got a few charitable foundations and i mean are you I guess you're at that stage of, of, of giving back, um, but um, maybe just speak a little bit more about that and, um, you know, why you're so open to, to just giving to the startup community at large and, and people in general, um, maybe touch on that generosity a bit more because it's certainly there. I think, I, think it's, I think it's important to give back and foster and help even a number of students and young people that are coming up that are really smart, but they're inexperienced because they're supposed to be inexperienced and to helping them get their first job or get their first this, get their first that. I think it's incumbent upon us all to be kind and, and do that. I think it's just something we should be doing as a human experience. Um, and uh, I just think it's the right thing to do. I mean, I, 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 I really love this country and I think that this country has given me so much opportunity. Just think about, you can be born or raised in many countries in this world and not have this opportunity. I mean, you, you, you can come to Canada, you can be anything you want. I mean, really, you can walk down the street as anything you want. You can, you can get on the street corner and you can hold up a sign about everything you hate about the prime minister, and that's okay. You can do that, free speech. You can do anything you want here. You can, you know, we have a stable banking system. We have a healthcare system. You know, if you're sick, we're there for you. There's an education system that's paid for. Like, there's a lot of support here in this country, and, and I owe this country a lot. I think we all owe this country a lot. And if you've done really well, you owe this country because you didn't do it alone in a way. Like, I did a lot of stuff. A lot of my success is mine, but it was built on this framework, on this infrastructure, on a great country. And I think we all owe this country a debt in a way um, for the greatness it is. And I, and I truly feel that way. I mean, um, you know, we, we have our problems in Canada. We're not perfect. We have tons of problems. But, you know, it, it, you, you, you are afforded rights here and a lifestyle here and a quality of living that you just do not have in 97% to 98% of the countries in the world. I mean, that's why having a Canadian passport is so great. Like, who's offended by our passport? Pretty much nobody, right? And uh, it, it's a great place. Absolutely. Who are some of those people that um, had an impact on you early on in your career that, you know, you may have reached out to to, to get some advice or um, that acted as mentors in, in general? Um, 
in the early days? You know, I brought people on my board early on and I uh, took on VCs that were very helpful and, uh, and uh, just, just people I would, you know, I, I would privately have some mentors that I respected yeah. in business that I would go and see and have dinners with and, and walk through my problems. A lot of people do YPO in this country and because it's very, very good. And a lot, I didn't do that, unfortunately, but there's a lot of great uh, groups that do that uh, and they really feed off of each other. But I think it's very important to find some people that you can speak to and communicate with. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a tough sport. It's a marathon, not a sprint. So uh, you've got to strap on for it. So, so what, what do you think um, people can do better generally? I mean, out of the many companies and founders that you've, you've observed, um, is there one thing that, you know, if we could just do this better, then, then we'd be better off? I know you said adapting as one, but, um, you know, maybe maybe touch on something else that's that's important and you know if if if, you know we had this trade or could develop this skill as as founders or entrepreneurs i think it's i think it's i think it's resilient i i I think it's resiliency it all comes down to resiliency i i think it's really tough i I, listen people listening to this don't become an entrepreneur don't do it don't start a company it's not that easy you don't have to start a company and 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 just thinking because it's cheap and fast to do it today I mean, you can be in a world of hurt. I just don't think being an entrepreneur is for everybody, right? Um, mm-hmm. you, you have to have a certain resiliency. If you're married with two kids and you have a lot of debt and you want to give up your job uh, because you think you can make money real quick being an entrepreneur, that's a monstrous risk because you could be two years without a salary. It's hard, really hard. And uh, I don't think it's for everybody. I think one in 10 people should be an entrepreneur. You know, maybe, maybe it's higher than that now because we got a lot more resources, but it's 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 a tough go of it. Who are I the mean, one in ten? Wrong. What's that? Who's the one out of ten that should that should do the it? most re- the most resilient the, the most people resilient, who show up yeah. and keep showing up the most resilient. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us, Michael. I appreciate you you taking the time. It was a, a pleasure speaking with you. Okay. Thanks for having me. I'll see you. Bye bye. All right, Mike. Still here, right? Um, yeah. How do you how do you think that went? Obviously, I've only done a few of these. We've got some other some other good guests uh, as well. So okay, I, hope I think it, it's great. Did. I think yeah. it's fine. Did you like it? Oh yeah, it was great. I appreciate the time and lots of good insights in there. Uh, any feedback on how to improve the the experience for for listeners overall? I won't keep you for too um, long. But. I think if you want to get more personal, you could have kind of gone into quotes and things that I said, and you could have read them out saying. I read this quote. Here's your quote. This is what you said. What did you mean by this or whatever? You could actually even go deeper, you know, and say, you know, like um, you, you could actually step like and make it really like a little more direct if you want. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. I thought you did a great job. It's it's I mean, you have some listeners, you get some feedback. When, when are you going to post it? Uh, most channels, YouTube, um, it'll go out on social, uh, Spotify, uh, iTunes. So so most channels. Um, but um I think some of the some of my areas I'm going to tape over just where the speech wasn't as fluent. I'm going to go back and and do that over. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, any any uh, any advice on how to promote it overall that you can think no, of? No, I, I I don't know. That's all your yeah. stuff. I, I don't yeah, know how absolutely. to do any of that. I I, I don't think yeah, I'm yeah. good at that at all. I'll leave we, that okay, to you, no but um, yeah, yeah, I'll leave that yeah. to you and have a good time. But it's better if you have a picture of me or something or a picture. Some people put out podcasts with no pictures and people don't click on them. Oh yeah. So. Yeah. We're going to put together a, a strategy for a design strategy for that. Absolutely. Do you want me to run that by you before it, before it goes up or are you, 
you trust trust what we yeah. kind of go with. Go ahead. Just make, just make it look nice. You can send it to me if you want, but I'm no rush. Yeah, you do whatever okay. you want. Perfect. I appreciate the okay, time. Then. All right. Thank you, Michael.